You're listening to Never Cool or Cowardly, a Doctor Who discussion podcast with Matt and Leon. You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes or on Twitter as Polite Whovians. I hope you enjoy the show. Since it began in 1963, the cliffhanger ending of nearly every episode of Doctor Who was an integral part of the classic series that ran until 1989. So much so that when the show returned in 2005, one of the questions on a lot of people's lips was, will there be cliffhangers? Indeed, when it became apparent that the bulk of the new series would be self-contained stories, there was great excitement at the prospect of a multi-part story with cliffhangers. But what exactly is a cliffhanger? When and where did it originate as a storytelling device? And what is it about them that appeals so much? Today on Never Cruel or Cowardly, we're going to discuss the cliffhanger, its origins and its use in Doctor Who and how it has evolved over the decades. So Matt, uh, what did you find out about cliffhangers? Well, I looked at three dictionaries in my house to try and get a definition of the cliffhanger. And what surprised me was that all three of them referred to cliffhangers as being a show or entertainment or a contest that was suspenseful. And only one of them had the expected definition, which I understood a cliffhanger to be, which was a suspenseful ending to an episode of a serial. So, there you go. Um, Perhaps more research to be done around that. But I think what we're assuming for the purposes of this podcast is that it's agreed that a cliffhanger is a suspenseful ending to an episode of a serial. So, I suppose the next question is, what do we mean by a serial? Well, I think there is a difference between a series and a serial. Okay. So we could possibly also say a suspenseful ending to an episode of a series. So Doctor Who, my understanding is that Doctor Who was a serial that later became a series at the beginning of the 1970s. Now, the difference is, for me, that a serial is ongoing, like The Archers, like a soap opera, like Coronation Street, whereas a series has discrete adventures. And like Sherlock or Deep Space Nine. And the cliffhanger nature in Doctor Who of the later adventures in the series, the classic series, comes from the fact they were four-part adventures or six-part adventures. But in the 60s, with the black and white serial, it was just ongoing. Each story ran into the next. So reasonable? I suppose that takes us back to, if we go back to um, the Greeks, I guess, because they, they did a lot of um, stuff that, that, that influenced our culture, shall we say. And there's an interesting piece I read years ago uh, about how Aristotle came to define the tragedy as a method of storytelling. And he went to great lengths in his lectures and his writings uh, about what the tragedy was. And he compared it to the epic, which was a more ongoing thing, mm-hmm. and not quite as good as a tragedy. So the epic mm-hmm. could go on forever. Like, this sentence is probably going to go on forever. Um, and each episode will ha- end with some kind of cliffhanger. Right. To keep the story progressing, I guess. And then, sort of in Victorian times, um, when printing became much more cheaper and accessible magazines started to serialize stories and to get readers to buy the next edition of their magazine uh, each episode would end with some kind of cliffhanger so at its simplest level the cliffhanger is a device it seems obvious but the cliffhanger is a device to bring you back for the next installment absolutely and then probably the most famous or where everyone traditionally thinks cliffhangers originally originated was the old movie serials that they used to um, show at the cinema every week. So you like the Flash Gordon and your Buck Rogers. Um, they became known as cliffhanger serials because each episode would end with some kind of cliffhanger and a caption saying, come back to find out what happens to Flash Gordon at this cinema next week. So before the time of TV and things, you'd go for your weekly entertainment at the cinema on Saturday morning. 
Now, I suppose the thing about those cliffhanger serials that I always found interesting, um, which was mentioned in Stephen King's book, Misery, because the fan who kidnaps the author in Misery makes this point, is the cliffhangers had a revisionist element, didn't they? Because you'd, they'd have a cliffhanger and then they'd change it. They'd insert some key piece of information you've missed. So let's say it's a it's a serial about the Rocket Men, and the the hero is on a plane, and they're fighting, you know, the villain, mm-hmm. and then the plane crashes, and you'd be like, oh, how's the hero going to get out of that? What they would generally do is they'd insert a clip where. You know, the next week where just before the plane crashed, the hero managed to get out with a parachute. So it was a kind of revisionist cliffhanger. It was a, it was a cheat, wasn't it? It was a cheat. I remember very distinctly because they used to show a lot of these um, in the summer during the school holidays. And I remember distinctly an episode of, strangely enough, King of the Rocket Men, where, and I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this correctly, um, the lead character drives a car over a cliff and as far as we know, no, sorry, no, the lead character's tied up in the back of the car and the car's driven over a cliff and to all intents and purposes he's died. But the next episode, it actually cuts and you actually see him escape and disappear around the corner, which is a total cheat. But well, for the most part, to be fair, Doctor Who doesn't do that. Although well, it did. <laughs> I found I, a moment when it did. Well, to be fair, how lo- it's the longest television science fiction series, ongoing science fiction series in the world. So it's done that on relatively few occasions, one of which you found. Yeah, so um, well, what you've got, you got to remember as well is all of these, these films, well, these, these serials, you had a week in between each episode, so your memory wasn't going to be that great anyway. Yeah. So you're going to think, did I really not see that bit before last week? And it doesn't really matter because it just drives the narrative forward. Um, there's an episode... We have a week between episodes of Doc 2, classic series. That's what I mean, yeah. yeah. So, it, yeah but what do you think had changed? Because they did play fair. So why? That's the reason they, The reason they played fair is because they, what they would do is the reprise was actually filmed the week before. They would actually play the last couple of minutes... Uh, from the week before as the start of the next episode because these were filmed practically a few days before they were shown. Mm. So the reprise was actually exactly the same as what they um, they recorded the week before. I suppose we'll never know, but are you saying with Doctor Who there's potentially an element that they didn't have time to cheat? I think it was a yeah. I think it was a cost cutting exercise rather than because you would have to record these new scenes to insert them. Yeah. And bear in mind that Doctor Who, particularly in the six, well, in the sixties up until nineteen seventy, was recorded as live. So maybe Whereas, it wasn't even an option. Yeah. So that there was no choice. Am, am I right in thinking that it was only really during John Pertwee's time? that things began to be recorded significantly out of order. Like you would have a separation between, with Troughton and Hartnell, you would have a separation between location and studio filming, but it was only with Pertwee, midway through Pertwee, that they began to film things in a more filmic way, out of order. You know, we will film every scene on this set that we're using. Because I'm sure there's something on one of the DVD extras about Pertwee finding that really difficult and well, it causing him to fluff his line. I'm sure Death to the Daleks, there's a bit about him finding it far more difficult to record things out of order. Which makes sense because they, they're all theatre actors or yeah. Pertwee was a radio actor as well. And I, I can imagine it's quite difficult um, if you're used to sort of playing scene after a story all the way through if you like as a play would be trying to actually know where you are within the story in a given scene well i suppose you've got the worst of both both worlds haven't you in a way because you've got the you've got the filming out of order in the sort of more filming way but you've got the truncated schedule of television 
so presumably if you were if you were doing a film like for one of a better example carry on screaming which you know john pertwee appeared in presumably there would be opportunities even if you were filming out of order to for downtime between takes because the nature of the film was there was you spent a longer amount of time on it and there was more time for setups and stuff so you'd be able to examine the scenes and check your lines i know no no nowadays they do sort of rehearse and shoot so they rehearse and actually film it whereas doctor who and the classic series anyway was very much you spend a week in a in a church or somewhere rehearsing and then but what's that got to do with cliffhangers? Is what you were about to say. Getting, getting off the, um, we're getting off the subject and a bit speculative. But if anyone's listening and wants to drop us a line via Twitter, uh, has any comments about that? Any television or film historians with more knowledge of that and less speculation? That'd be very interesting. So anyway, the essential point is cliffhanger, suspenseful ending to an episode of a serial or series, and at its very basic level, designed to draw people back. We're agreed on that. That's what we are. Doing. Yes, yeah, and, and and really, I mean, I, essentially, it's a marketing tool, isn't it? It's a way of actually getting people to buy the next issue of your magazine, or come to the cinema the following week, or tune into your TV program the following week. Which is why I guess soap operas were so successful in um, on American television. I'm trying to think of the word. What's the word? What? The opposite, not 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 BBC. The other ones, the ITV ones, commercial television. Thank you. Right, start that again. That explained why soap operas were so successful, or so used so much on commercial television because it's a continuing narrative that ends with a cliffhanger and makes you want to tune into the next episode, and then you've got a captive. And then, and you picked up on something quite interesting about the psychological effects of a cliffhanger. Well, there's a thing I was reading about re- recently, I might mispronounce this, called the Zygonic Effect. That sounds and, good. Um, I'm just quoting from a book called The Art of Thinking Clearly, which is a fantastic book. Um, but basically, we're in Berlin in 1927, and a group of university students and professors visit a restaurant. The waiter takes order upon order, including special request but does not bother to write anything down this is going to end badly they think but after a short wait all diners receive exactly what they ordered after dinner outside on the street russian psychology student bloomer zygonik apologies if i've mispronounced that notices that she's left her scarf behind in the restaurant she goes back in finds the waiter with the incredible memory and asks him if he has seen it he stares at her blankly it's no idea who she is or where she sat. How can you have forgotten, she asks indignantly, especially with your super memory. The waiter replies curtly, I keep every order in my head until it is served. served. Zygonik and her mentor, Kurt Lewin, I may have mispronounced that as well, studied this strange behaviour and found that all people function more or less like the way. We seldom forget uncompleted tasks. They persist in our consciousness and do not let up, tucking at us like little children until we give them our attention. On the other hand, once we've completed a task and checked it off our mental list, it is erased from memory. Which, as we were going to talk about cliffhangers, I found quite interesting as a psychological effect. So that's quite interesting because... In a way, that gives a little bit of credence to what Mary Whitehouse said about the ending of, I think it, I can't remember which episode The Deadly Assassin it was, but the one where he's drowned. And she said that's not really fair on the kids because they will think Doctor Who's being drowned for a full week and not having that, that that closure of him either, well, of him surviving because, of course, we always know that Doctor Who will be fine. Because it's his show, and if he dies, there's no show. Well, that's incredibly relevant to the to a point I was about to make. But before I do that, we mentioned the seeds of death being the cliffhanger that they cheated on. Do you have any more detail on that, on the specifics of that? Yes, um, I found out about it, or I remembered it, um, 
because I remember the review of the VHS release, which was actually edited together into a movie, so there was no episode endings on the original VHS recording. And I remember the review saying that actually it screws up the continuity um, in this particular cliffhanger. Um, and you can tell that I'm actually talking while I find the actual relevant bit. Here we go. So this is actually the cliffhanger of episode five ends with Doctor Who, as played by Patrick Troughton, uh, trying to gain access uh, to the Weather Control Bureau. And while he's trying to do this, uh, the Martian fungus starts to actually engulf the whole building. So you've got Patrick Troughton there trying to get through this door. All this Martian fungus, which is basically just a load of bubble bath, um, mm -hmm. growing up around it. At the same time, the scene cuts to inside the bureau where there's a nice warrior that's starting to approach the entrance that Doctor Who's trying to get into. Um, and as the episode climaxes, uh, Doctor Who's trying to protect himself um, from one of these expanding seed pods, that, pods that's about to burst. They look a bit like a balloon. So that's how it ends. So basically Troughton's about to have a balloon burst on him, which is going to unleash this um, Martian fungus on him. And at the same time, even if he does get through the door, you've got an ice rally on the other side. Right. So a week later, episode six starts. And this time, rather than just doing playing the film in, as we discussed earlier, and they intersperse it with some recorded stuff um, from the studio, um, which is basically Jamie and Zoe um, are actually following the ice warrior down. Jamie distracts the Ice Warrior, giving Zoe the opportunity to actually run up to the door and open the door. Mm -hmm. So you've got these extra scenes of Jamie basically getting the Ice Warrior to move away from the door, Zoe opening the door, and it cuts back to what was the climax of episode five, Trouton about to be engulfed by this thing just as the door opens and he falls through. Now apparently that was edited a bit badly um, on the VHS release from the late 80s, early 90s. Right. Having never seen it because it was ridiculously expensive in those days, I couldn't actually tell you, but that was my memory of the review. So this is the the only example we found of a cheat? The only one that the, I know of, yeah. Of the RKO serials. Yeah. And and funnily enough, I mean, we've, we've talked about, well, we haven't talked about it yet, but I've got a note here when we talked previously to this episode... Um, prior to this episode, the cliffhangers rely on absence and interruption, i.e. the gap in broadcasting between two episodes. So, so really, and I, I came up with various categories for cliffhangers. Originally, my idea was I was going to come up with categories for cliffhangers and I was going to go through every episode of Doc 2 and try and match my categories and see how well they fitted. And I, I came to the conclusion that this was a ridiculous idea partly because the history of Doctor Who is so long and there's so many episodes, but also because it quickly became clear to me that even if you, you know, come up with fairly good categories, a cliffhanger will often fall into multiple categories. Anyway, one of them I came up with, though, was was the puzzle. I called it the puzzle. Okay. And um, this is the idea, I suppose, that you could apply to almost any cliffhanger that a viewer having an absence or interruption, having a week, for example, to think about, or in the case of Sherlock, I think it was a couple of years or a year at one point, um, will gain satisfaction about speculating how the cliffhanger will be resolved, particularly so not... the days of the internet. And, of course, the problem with the cheated cliffhanger, the problem with the revisionist cliffhanger, is to quote from Misery again, it doesn't play fair. It doesn't. That's interesting because you know... As I said um, before, you know that Doctor Who always can, well, Doctor Who in particular, the protagonist of the show, is going to survive. He's going to get out of the cliffhanger. Mm. But what, like you say, what the cliffhanger gives you is a puzzle. So it's not so much will the Doctor survive, it's how will the Doctor survive. And yeah. so it's a lot more engagement with the viewer. They can think over the week, oh, I wonder what will happen. Well... One of my favourite cliffhangers is from The Mind of Evil when the Doctor 
is um, various other people being menaced during a, uh, a riot in a prison. And um, it's a John Pertwee doctor. And a, guns are being fired. And someone points a gun at the John Pertwee doctor. And then it cuts to a close-up of a gun being fired, the trigger being pulled. And you think, well, how's he going to get out of that one? Um, and then what it turns out is next week is that it's actually unit coming to his rescue and the gun that it cuts to is i believe the brigadier's gun and that's part of the yeah it would shoot doctor who um and i think that's a that's a cliffhanger paying fair i found that satisfying enough to um steal it for a comic strip i wrote but anyway (laughs) (laughs) which i got paid for but i think it's an excellent it's an excellent cliffhanger I don't know if you agree. It's, it's, I think what it does, it, it's, it's arguable whether it plays fair, but I think you're in on the joke. And I think it's quite satisfying in a humorous kind of way. And well, I think. I suppose, I, yeah, I suppose you would call it, I think they're called limited information puzzles. In the Hitchhiker's text game, you, you have to get out of the room. One of the first things you need to mm. do is you need to get out of his bedroom. And he's dizzy because he's got a hangover. Yeah. You know you're in the room. You know the room appears to be swaying from side to side. You know he's been drinking and he's got a hangover, Arthur Dent. And you know he's wearing a dressing gown. A limited information puzzle. You know very little else. And at some point you go, hang on, dressing gowns have pockets. And you find the aspirin in the pocket, yeah. Yeah, it's not something you've been explicitly told. So... You go look in pocket, you get the aspirin, you get out, You the room stops swaying once you take it. You get out of the room before the bulldozer mm. destroys the house you're in. And it's very so, much, it's a lateral thinking puzzle, isn't it? There, there, there's, yeah. There's a whole history of that, yeah. Yeah. Just, just before you, I mean, you mentioned the Doctor in Danger and the Doctor Companion in Danger, which I think is a great one to discuss. But I noticed on your notes, prepared for this podcast, you have just this little note that says, did Doctor Who need cliffhangers? It was a BBC series. What prompted you to write that note? What was the thinking behind that? So this goes back to what I was saying earlier about the fact that there's commercial need for cliffhangers, if you like, in that they bring people back the following week. Um, Plus, as well, I think you find in a lot of American programmes that there'll be a cliffhanger when it comes up to a commercial break. And you see that, you see that in commercial television over here as well. Um, If you ever watch um, any American show that was on on a channel with commercials, that there will be regular beats throughout the show where the tension rises, Mm. and they're practically cliffhangers. Well, they are cliffhangers, and it's to get you to come back after you've watched the commercials. You know, been sold stuff. So I was thinking, okay, that's clearly why Doctor Who's doing it as well as as a maybe. As a continuing narrative, they want you to come back every week. But then I thought, but hang on a minute, it's a BBC programme, they don't really need to do that. Is this almost a Rethian objection that you imagine the... Maybe that's what it was, yes. The BBC executives sitting around making some programme, I don't know about uh, folk music and plasticine, and Mm. saying, well, it doesn't have to be exciting if there's a need for it. We'll get a few figures, and if there isn't a need for it, well, that's not the BBC's remit. We're supposed to fulfil a need. That sort of anti-commercial approach. So, so then I was thinking a little bit more about this, and I thought, well, maybe the cliffhanger and the epic serial, if you like, has actually grown a bit more than the commercial necessity to actually get people to come back and follow a story. Maybe it's become embedded as part of a serial narrative. And even, yeah. even these days you see it um, in the self-contained stories. There's a thread through every season so far since it's come back, which well, has surely, kept people coming back. Surely Sidney Newman's genius was to say, I mean, he was brought in to bring a commercial sensibility. His, his success, his background, or maybe he wasn't, I'm imposing something there, but certainly his background was in commercial television. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And so he was brought in to shake things up, bring his expertise, and and his intention for Doctor Who was it would be a meeting of an exciting adventure serial and 
the sort of the educative side of things in terms of science and history. So surely the cliffhanger, it's, a, it's like Mary Poppins. It's a spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. That's what I started thinking that actually, yeah, the, the, the nature of the show and the stories it wanted to tell and the, the style of story, it, the style it wanted to use to tell those stories, that the cliffhanger was absolutely perfect. And it is, it's, a, it's an epic narrative, Doctor Who is. Before we, before we move to sort of Doctor Companion in Danger, one little... You are question. teasing the audience with this, aren't you? This is almost yeah, like I a cliffhanger. I'm going to announce that I'm, I'm pregnant soon and I don't know who the father is. Um, one, and one, I'll announce that I'm your father and then... And I'll get my hand chopped off and fall... Anyway, one, um, one thing that I can't get an answer to in my brain, a question that's been rattling around, which I'm going to pose to you now without having forewarned you. Okay. Suspense. Um, why is the cliffhanger so fetishised by a certain kind of Doctor Who fan? I think you've explained it already. I think it's that that logic puzzle. Right. It, it's that trying to second guess um, how, how the cliffhanger is going to be resolved. I think a perfect it's example. Nostalgia, then. Pure nostalgia. I don't, no, I don't think it is. I think it's the challenge. I think you see it um, with the episode of Sherlock, uh, the Ride Back Four one, where everybody that watched the show was trying to work out whether the clue was there that actually revealed how he got how he got out of it and how he survived. Was the non the kind of non explanation of that? Was that a brilliant move, or was it a snub? I don't know because I don't watch Sherlock. I, I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no, I just, I just don't watch the show. So uh... that's a cliffhanger. I'll answer that question next episode. Okay. Do we want to? Do we want to move on to the types of cliffhangers a little bit? The, yeah, I think, I think, I think you'd already start to see into that quite nicely. Well, I've, we've done the puzzle. Um, you mentioned we've, we've kind of talked about the cliff, cliffhangers with fake resolutions, and then. We've got the Doctor Companion in Danger. So you mentioned the, the almost the futility of the Doctor in Danger. Because, and I think we're channeling Phil Sandifer here, uh, because we know he's not going to die. We don't, but that's, but that's exactly what we've been saying, isn't it? It's not so much whether they're going to get out of it, it's how. Now, was this always the case? Because I was thinking about this. And I was wondering if there was a point. I, I wonder if, you know, there's an, uh, a really nice article by Alan Barnes, who can be trusted to write very nice articles, um, by which I mean enjoyable, interesting, stimulating, in the yearbook 2017, the Doctor Magazine yearbook 2017. And he speaks, he writes about 1966 as this banner year with all the changes that occurred, including the renewal of the lead actor um, in Doctor Who. But I'm a little bit obsessed with what might have happened earlier if Hartnell, if they'd got rid of Hartnell earlier, Hartnell had had to leave. And I sometimes I find myself thinking, well, imagine if Hartnell was incredibly ill in the first year and they, there was no way he could continue. I could imagine Doctor Who, you know, the character getting shunted off or killed and it carrying on with Ian Barbara and Susan in this out-of-control time machine. Like Taggart? Yeah, kind of like Taggart, or like the Avengers, which changed originally. Oh, that completely, yeah. And then they got rid of one of them. They kept Patrick McNee, and Honor Blackman came along, and he, it changed from quite a sort of grim, dark programme to something a bit more kinky boots and swinging mm. 60s. Yeah, and a you, bit more camp. You find yourself thinking... And this leads me, in terms of cliffhangers, to think, well, in the early days, surely all bets were off. Surely the Doctor could have gone. Or do you think that's naive of me? It'd be interesting to know how... So, was there actually a gap between the Tenth Planet and Power of the Daleks, or what, did they follow on from one no, week to the next? No, they follow on immediately. They follow on immediately, because... So because I thought you'd know this, I'm surprised. But anyway, Hartnell stumbles, Hartnell stumbles into the TARDIS. He does his, um, at the end of Ten Planet, he does his magic fingers, keyboard work. 
Mm. And then he, he renews, and it seems to be... I mean, the implication, I think, was supposed to be it's a younger version of the Doctor. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, rather than, you know, this idea of re regeneration, which came later. And then Ben and Polly immediately follow him. But you're right, I suppose... So, but I, I guess by then, 66, um, it was established that Doctor Who was the star of the show. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, yeah. I think like you say, in the early days, that first season in particular, it's, it's a kind of a toss-up between Ian and the Doctor as to who your lead character is. So... When we all know it was Barbara anyway, but, you know, that's beside the point. So, presumably, threatening the main character in the type of adventure serial that Doctor Who became was foolish because you're not going to kill the I, Doctor. I don't think you... I think that's the point, though. I think, I think the point is that it's not foolish because it's about... It, it, as I keep saying it, it's more about the, the how rather than the, the will they. Yeah. Well, it's a puzzle thing again. Yeah. It's a puzzle thing. How will the Doctor get out of this one? Which makes which makes the literal cliffhanger in that episode of Dragonfire where um, Sylvester McCoy hangs off a ledge all the more ridiculous. Yeah, and the literal because, get out of that he climbs back up. <laughs> yeah, even if they'd managed to film it properly, there was there's no tension, there's no danger. Mm. But equally, quite often there is no tension or danger. But if there's not going to be tension or danger, then the story has to move on in a different way. The cliffhanger has to illuminate something new about the story uh, that you want to have explored, or it has to have a puzzle element of how they're going to resolve this one. And there's always the thing as well is that you know that the nature of, of um, the cliffhanger is you know it's going to be resolved in the first two minutes of the next show. So you're probably not going to kill off any of the major characters in the first two minutes of the show unless you can have 23 yeah. minutes of mourning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Although, yeah, that's true. Although there was a notable exception in, is it the Daleks' master plan? When they killed, was she called Katrina? Katrina, yeah. Yeah, they killed, but I'm not sure if that was a cliffhanger. I don't think it was, no. She, she just died halfway through. We're going to start that old argument about whether she's a companion or not, so we better not go there. The other thing that the Doctor in Danger sparked in me was was whether, to what extent, titles can be cliffhangers. Almost, you know, even outside of the show, because... Well, particularly... For example, in the, the death of Doctor Who in The Chase, but I was thinking in the modern show, The uh, Heart of TARDIS. Is that is that a kind of a cliffhanger? The the episode titles are announced in advance, and you you spend you know six months or a year thinking, oh, they're going to go to the centre of the TARDIS, and speculating about what you'd like to see there. So the cliffhanger is tease. Well, I think I think there's all sorts of things around the show that almost act like cliffhangers because we, as we've established, the show is full of reversals and full of questions and full of moments about what will happen next. But quite often, you see what is going to happen next within, you know, thirty seconds, five minutes, ten minutes. But the paraphernalia around the show that teases, that, you know, stuff like the titles, uh, a regeneration—they're almost like cliffhangers above and beyond the show because i was thinking with the regeneration it's maybe the biggest cliffhanger you can have because the fans are probably thinking will the new actor rise to the occasion it's almost a cliffhanger in real life will the will the new actor result in the cancellation of the show no that's true yeah absolutely if i was a academic i would put that in more sophisticated terms so if but someone it, can get it, in touch and put that in more sophisticated terms, that'd be lovely. It would be. It triggers the same emotional responses, doesn't it? I think is what you're yeah. saying. It's like, yeah, oh. And also, yeah. And also, I think fans like to speculate, don't they? Of course. And, what, and we've talked about the interruption and the speculative aspect of the cliffhanger, you know, and that, that space to speculate. So you have that now, I guess, with the uh, post-credit, uh, trailers or pre-credit yeah. trailers that bit at the end next time yeah which is yeah. effectively oh look all these exciting bits what what do they actually mean and what context yeah, yeah what, what, what would the actual context of these be 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. What about monster reveals? Monster reveals, that was another category I came up with. So my favourite one is the Dalek coming out of the Thames. Really? Do you think yeah. that's a good monster reveal? Was it the first time they actually did something like that? I mean, it was the Daleks were the first returning monster. Well, the Daleks, the first cliffhanger in the first Dalek story is just the stalk, isn't it? The hmm. sucker, rather. It's a sucker. Um, Terry Nation, you see, the problem is, when you're dealing with natural show people like Terry Nation, well, I never knew him, obviously, but you got the impression he was a natural show person. He was a very clever man in terms of the marketing of his own creations and himself. Um, he he told that story about, you know, you have the sequence at the end of the first episode of the first Dalek story where Barbara, something menaces Barbara and you just see a sucker or mm. something. You, that's all you see of the Dalek. And immediately, as soon as the credits rolled, his phone was ringing off the hook with people. So what the hell was that? Yeah. Did that happen? I mean, but but it is... It is a fantastic... It's a tease, isn't it? Hmm. Later on in the Dalek stories, it became less of a tease because, obviously, they're there in the title. But I think that first one, the Dalek Invasion of Earth, I think it coming out of the Thames is fantastic for a number of reasons. Number one, every all the children are presumably waiting for the Daleks. So it's not about... It's about when, conceivably, they're going to appear. Well, it works in two it's ways. It's about how they're going to appear. So in that, that one in particular works in two ways because I'm pretty sure it was advertised in the Radio Times, wasn't it, they were coming back? Yeah. Well, the story's called Dalek Invasion of Earth. Wasn't it, it wasn't, that was it? World's End was the name of the, story, the title of the episode. But it would have been in the Radio Times as Dalek Invasion. It wasn't. No, they were, none of them were given episode uh, story titles. Crikey, I've just shown myself up. <laughs> keep that bit in. I'll keep that bit in, don't worry. Um, so you could, if you, if you weren't a regular Radio Times viewer, mm. then watching this episode of Doctor Who where it's all, oh, some, something's invaded Earth, um, and then this Dalek reveal at the end, would have been, oh my God, look, the Daleks are back. So likewise with the chase. The cha- Yeah, the chase, again, wouldn't have... That could have been a surprise to people as well, yeah. So the coughing Dalek, the crying children everywhere. And what? But but much later they did it with the Cybermen in Earthshock. They did, yes. That was referring to Phil Sandifer. He does he does talk about how to the average viewer the reveal of the Cybermen is a moment where the average viewer realizes that some androids are being controlled by what appears to be some more androids who have an unhealthy fixation on the Doctor. But my sister, who was a sort of a big science, television science fiction fan, was very excited about it. But I think... The average viewer made of it. I think most people, particularly in this country, mm. had an awareness of what the Cybermen were. Right. I, 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 then of course, they weren't as famous as the Daleks, but I think there would have been a bit more of a recognition of... Oh, you know, kids would have turned to their parents and say what was that why are you so excited it's like oh i remember this from years ago when i was a kid and i watched it so what do you need for a good monster reveal if you're going to have a monster reveal as your cliffhanger what do you need Mm. has to be in some way unexpected well because i think i think if dialects are in the title it still works because like you said you're waiting for them to appear deferred gratification which is destiny of the daleks I think probably the best monster reveal, like the best companion or Doctor in Danger, is is somehow somehow dovetails with another type of cliffhanger to give it a bit more of an edge. And and I wanted to just jump to something we've mentioned mentioned already, which is the literal cliffhanger. Do you, so an example we've mentioned is Dragonfire, where he kinds of hangs off a ledge he's mm. supposed to be hanging off a cliff edge having got into trouble while climbing the sylvester mccoy doctor and then there's genesis of the daleks where sarah jane falls and it, i think it actually freeze frames on her but oh, it did yes are, are those moments in themselves a literal cliffhanger are they just duds if they've got no other element particularly if they involve 
Are they duds if they involve main characters like the companion or the doctor? Are they just a waste of time? No, because you still got Sarah Jane will somehow survive that, mm-hmm. but you don't know how. And similar, there was a there's a cliffhanger in the pilot planet that I remember vividly, um, where he's made to walk the plank, mm-hmm. and toward, uh, and he walks the plank and he falls off. And then it turns out the the resolution to that was that he was using a 3D projector and it wasn't right. actually him that was falling off. Right. Um, so that, that's an interesting resolution. Okay. okay. But there was a resolution to it and it wasn't... I think sometimes they can feel forced. Yeah. That 24 minutes in, you've got to ramp up the uh, the tension, as it were. Now, I've, I've got three more categories I came up with. Okay. Which was, who is the Doctor? This isn't the story you think you've been watching. And the set piece. Which of those do you fancy dealing with? Well, the, the, um, this isn't the story you think you've been watching. Um, you mentioned the invasion of time in that. Uh, where you've, you've got the Doctor for the duration of the episode acting like, well, a bit of an arse, really, wasn't he, if I remember rightly? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then it turns out um, that actually it was just a plot all along to, to deal with this Varden invasion. And that... that and you, you, again, have this isn't the story you think you've been watching because it turns out at the end of episode four, this isn't a story about the Doctor being incredibly clever and fooling the Vardens. It's actually about the... Doctor thinking he's more clever than he is and the Sontarans exactly. use his schemes and the Varden schemes as a bridgehead to access Gallifrey. And that became common in the McQueer, if I remember rightly, as well. There was a lot of episode threes where McCoy would go, oh my God, I think I've been outfoxed by something. McCoy yeah, being the... as clever as I thought. Yeah. Well, Remembrance of the Daleks, I'm struggling to remember, which is strange because I really like that story. Is that one of the ones where he's... I think maybe... Is that, I'll have to go back and look, but I wonder if there's a moment where he suddenly realises maybe it's not a good idea to promote Dalek Civil War on Earth. <laughs> the kind of, whoops, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, if there isn't that moment, I'll write a fan fiction about it. So, <laughs> right, anyway, so, but actually in terms, I, I seem to remember Stephen Moffat making this point that he realised about two-parters, that actually um, it's, it's not like you saw a story in half and you put a nice uh, cliffhanger there in the middle of it, that actually the way a two-parter should work is that the end of the first part should send you shooting off into a new direction. And he seems keen on the the idea of this isn't the story you think you've been watching. Well, I was again. You've got to be you've got to be careful that you play fair and you don't just from out of nowhere uh, subvert your own story without any. You know, the whole idea of Chekhov's gun that you need that gun in the first act that's going to go off in the third act. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking actually of uh, what he did uh, a couple of years ago with the Magician's Apprentice, where it. He had quite a, a quite a nice cliffhanger that he totally ignored until the end of the show, the following week's episode. What was the cliffhanger? Something to do with the young Davos and the Doctor lands uh, and. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a good example I felt. Now spoilers here for if anyone's not seen. The Witness for the Prosecution, the adaptation of the Agatha Christie short story that was broadcast on the BBC over Christmas. Stop listening now and don't come back until you've seen that story. Have you seen that story? Yes, we spoke about it the other few days ago. Just checking. I thought the end of episode one... In fact, I don't have to spoil it, do I? For people who have seen it, I thought... It's only people that have seen it are listening now, so you're fine. Yeah, yeah. I thought the end of episode one was a very good example of this isn't the story you think you've been watching. You'll have to you'll have to remind me of the episode ending now. 
It's where she goes down to see her lover in the uh, in the cell. Oh, where she spits in his face and she goes, yes, yes. Hang, hang, yes. Right, the, the final two categories I had were who is the doctor? Which... Which is maybe a variation on this isn't the story you think you've been watching, because I've referenced the invasion of time and the set piece. Before Let's talk about the set piece then. What did you mean by that? Right. Well, I had, to, I had to look up the term in the dictionary to see if I got it right. I mean, in my head, the set piece is a is a moment in a film. An example might be, say, in the Star Wars films where the X wings. Attack the Death Star, that's the set piece, that's the big exciting moment with lots of action and lots of stuff going on. Now, in my head, typically, Doctor Who does it rather differently, that it can have its own more domestic, more kitchen sink version of the set piece. Now, I'm just looking in the dictionary because I did find a definition of... A set piece, if I can find it. A formal or elaborate arrangement, especially in art or literature. Okay. So for me, that's something like, I suppose, if you're watching a, um, were they called uh, Sand and Sandals epics? Those sort of... Oh, yes. You know, if if there's a big battle scene or something like that. Uh, So for me, it's just an arresting moment. But often I think in Doctor it's more... It's more seemingly low-key, although no less effective. The two example I, examples I picked on was Silence in the Library. I think it's Silence in the Library, where Donna... Has, there's an image where... Oh, when the thing turns around and Donna's head faces in there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So she's kind of been absorbed into the library. Yes, because it has this station, these stations that speak, these kind of robotic stations, aren't they? That speak mm. to people and help them in the library, but they've they've got human faces. They've got these kind of human avatars have been sucked into the library in some way, and one of these turns around and it has Donna's face on. Um, and then the other one I thought of, the one will, that will always stick in my mind that I'm referring to as a set piece, is the end of the episode in Logopolis, where the Doctor teams up with the Master. Ah. Yeah, that's not really... Yeah, so there's... I see what you're saying with... Yeah, so with that one, is there's no, there's no real puzzle there. No, no. It's I like... It's all about deferred gratification, the the eagerness to see. It's almost like I didn't see that coming. I didn't see that, and I really want to know what happens next. Exactly. So yeah. it's almost like the quintessential cliffhanger. And I love the. And I think we lose something now, don't we? Because I can't resist mainlining most Doc Two at once. So I lose that. We can we can never see these cliffhangers anew, can we? Really? No. That's the thing. But that's one of the things that. It's nice about having new Doctor Who on is that, and that's why I think that the story arcs work in a similar fashion to what the old cliffhangers worked. It was like you have a revelation and you think, oh my God, where's this going to go? Yeah. And the, the thing about, and I think all, all um, these kind of adventure serials now do this, is that they'll have some kind of revelation maybe at the end of a, an episode or something and then not really get back to it for a few episodes I think the uh, I don't know if you saw the last series of the X-Files that was on last year or was it this year this year no. that that was so the first episode of that um, if you know anything of the, the X-Files mythology uh, revealed a lot of stuff and then it, it, I think it was I think there was six eight episodes something like that and then for the next four or five episodes, nothing. It was just Monster of the Week again. And it didn't actually return to any of those themes until the end. So that's an insane amount of delay gratification. But You put in your notes, 2005, the show returns with no cliffhangers. Statement of fact, or do you have a position on this? It's a statement of fact. Oh, no, it came back with less cliffhangers. 
I think it's, it's like, like we said in the introduction that um, a lot of people were asking that question, would it have cliffhangers? And I think the moment that I think Russell announced that it was going to be mainly self-contained episodes, there was definitely an element of fandom that was going, I want cliffhangers. Um, and I think, I think storyte- it's, storytelling's changed, particularly on television, um, with the advent of, um, of home video um, and DVDs and the box sets and things. Mm-hmm. It's that I don't think you really need that kind of weekly cliffhanger. I think what what you need is it's like you were saying. Um, I think that the story arcs, the, the season arcs, have actually replaced that, and that's what keeps you coming back every week to sort of find out. And I think that's what. And we're expecting, I think, as an audience now, um, narrative arcs, narrative arcs more. We've become more sophisticated um, in our media literacy and what we kind of expect. Well, the the narrative arc is even creeping into films. You know, uh, particular well, particularly genre films. You've you've got this thing now, haven't you? Where the Marvel universe, although as on television you can see each film separately, mm. they interconnect. And I don't know if the Marvel films are into double figures yet. Wow. But you know that's. It's like they're crafting um, serials for the cinema. In fact, it's almost full circle to RKO in a way, isn't it? It is. It's it's quite interesting because I mean, this was happening in the eighties, though, and it's. it's, I know that. well, you think about two big franchises from back in the day, Back to the Future and Star Wars. Um, the second and the third movies in those trilogies were very much serial in nature. Mm-hmm. They both lead to each other, and I think Back to the Future was filmed two and three were filmed back to back. They were, yes. Two and three were filmed back to back. And similarly, Superman 1 and 2 were filmed back to back as well. Yes. Um, I think... I think the cut of Superman is quite... The one that went into the cinemas is quite significantly different to the director's cut. Right, okay. But, I mean, that that first Superman movie features the villains in the opening sequence that would turn up in Superman 2. Yeah. So so maybe the Marvel stuff's doing it a bit more, but I wonder if that's more to do with the fact that Marvel comics, when... um, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were creating them, uh, were very much interconnected. So they're kind of repeating that. They're looking back on Marvel history and trying well, to do the same things with the films. Well, the Jack Kirby and Stan Lee were very good at, or at least someone in that organisation, <laughs> maybe just Stan Lee, I don't know, but they were very good at creating a sort of a buzz, a relationship with their readers. And the, the, they were very good at, and I hate to use this term, they were very good at branding, weren't they? You know, they had the club. It was a group of comics. To the extent where, growing up, it would be, are you a Marvel person or a DC person? Mm. And Marvel very much felt like, for a long time, Marvel felt like the hipper brand. And, uh, yeah, they, they were good at, and they were good at using... You know, pulling characters across and using books to launch other books and experimenting—they were—they were just canny, weren't they? I mean, and arguably, I think it probably got more the case when Stan and Jack stopped doing stuff. And I think you probably look at the sort of seventies and eighties, where Marvel continuity got a lot more complicated and started to cross over between books. Do you Which think I th- so? Because I think I think Stan Lee was the consummate showman. He was absolutely. In terms of the actual storytelling. I'm I'm talking in terms of the actual actual storytelling. So it'd be there for. I get from what from what I remember from what I've read. I think I think the the stuff that Stan and Jack were doing was a little bit more self-contained than than what you got. 
yeah. later in the seventies where you know you'd get you'd get the thing teaming up with one of the defenders and then the story continuing in the next next month's defenders comic. I suppose it's kind of chicken and egg, isn't it? It's like was Marvel a place that allowed people to experiment with these grand continuities or was it a place that people went because they felt they would be able to craft these grand continuities? So the two that come to mind are Jim Starling mm-hmm. with his kind of prog rock cosmic stuff that was yeah, going yeah. on around numerous books and of course the granddaddy of all in terms of soap opera storytelling, Chris Claremont. Yeah. Excellent. We've drifted so far from Doctor Who. We have, haven't we? Yeah. Do we want to finish with our favourite Doctor Who cliffhanger? I think that'd be really good, yeah. You're going to have to go first. Oh, no, because I I actually, before we do that, I wanted to ask you something. Um, Was there ever a cliffhanger you didn't see resolved? See resolved? Yeah. So the reason I'm asking this is because for years, I didn't know what the resolution to episode one of the Leisure Hive was. Because I, I missed the, se- the second episode. I don't think so. I think because I had a fairly uh, straightforward relationship with Doctor Who. I I watched pretty much every week from late Tom Baker. What was the effect of not seeing this cliffhanger to the leisure hive result? Well, it's really weird because even though I've seen it, I still can't tell you how that cliffhanger gets resolved. So, Matt, have you got a favourite cliffhanger? I think I mentioned Legopolis. I think that's an absolute classic moment with the Master and the Doctor teaming up. And I have a lot of time for that story anyway because I love the atmosphere of foreboding that's generated. And I could have actually coped with the slightly more glass-half-empty Doctor that Baker's portraying. I could have dealt with that for a, uh, a longer time. The Mind of Evil, where the gun is fired. But it's not. Um, I talked about that earlier. But I think maybe in terms of the impression it made on me as a child and the fact it's from one of the most underrated stories of all time, absolutely one of the most underrated Doctor Whos ever is the sequence at the end of, I believe, the first episode of Destiny of the Daleks, when the Dalek smashes through the wall to menace Romana. <laughs> As a child, I almost had to change my trousers. See, that had it. I was scared. That, that had it all, you see, because you... And that, that notion of there's no stairs... You know, they've fallen down this shaft, oh, there's okay. no way up, and the, the wall pulsates... And they've gone for plastic so the the Dalek can um, smash through. And there's something almost almost organic about that pulsating black plastic wall. And they shoot the Daleks beautifully. And they smash it through. It's just wonderful. <laughs> it's a wonderful monster reveal. You know they're coming, but it's a wonderful reveal. It it optimises all that is great about the Daleks visually at a time when the props were looking a little bit knackered. And Lala Ward sells it completely. It's great direction, great performance, great cliffhanger. Right, my turn then. Yeah, go on. So it is. So, so it was quite interesting you said it was, it was how scary that cliffhanger was. The one that gave me nightmares was part two of the Android Invasion. Ooh. Where Sarah's head, her face falls off and she's revealed to be an android. Oh, good choice. That gave me nightmares for years. In fact, I still think I have nightmares about that scene. Do you think that cliffhanger shows or demonstrates how sometimes Doctor Who is more than it's it's it can be about its parts rather than its whole? Because nowadays the android invasion is kind of derided yeah. for legitimate reasons because it doesn't hang together well as a whole, particularly if you watch four episodes of it, although I enjoy it. But actually it's chock-a-block full of wonderful 
Terry Nation, pulp moments. I, th- I think at its heart, and maybe this is something we should talk about in a future episode. Yeah. I think I think what makes Doctor Who great is those moments. And we'll leave it there for this edition. And um, we would like to thank uh, Miles Paul uh, for creating our lovely logo that you can see on our Twitter account. And if you're getting this from SoundCloud, you should be able to see it on there as well. So thank you for listening. Say goodbye, Matt. Oh, bye. Sorry. Yeah.